Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Mirror of Erised. So I'll start off with a quick synopsis of the chapter. Despite Malfoy's teasing, Harry is excited to stay at Hogwarts for Christmas. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are continuing to research Nicholas Flamel in the library to no avail. On Christmas morning, Harry is surprised to receive presents, especially an invisibility cloak, which he is told through an anonymous note belonged to his father. Later that night, Harry uses the cloak to go explore the restricted section of the library. He opens a book and that starts to shriek and runs into an empty classroom as Filch and Snape appear, searching for the culprit. In the room, Harry finds a mirror that shows him surrounded by his parents and extended family. Entranced by what he's seen, he returns the next night with Ron, who, rather than his own family, sees instead himself, but older and more accomplished, head boy and Quidditch captain. The next day, Harry barely eats and thinks of nothing but getting back in front of the mirror. Ron warns him again against this, stating that he feels like there is something off about the mirror. Harry goes anyway and encounters Dumbledore in the mirror room. Dumbledore helps Harry to understand what he's been seeing and how the mirror of Erised works, which is that it shows the viewer the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. Quote, he tells Harry that people have wasted away in front of this mirror before, that the mirror will be moved to a new home, and that Harry should not seek it out, but that if he did meet the mirror again, he would at least know how it works. So first off, let's cover the Christmas presents that Harry gets. Obviously, he gets the cloak. We'll cover that a little bit later. Um, but first, I want to just talk about two other presents that are kind of important to him. Um, the first being the flute that Hagrid gives him, a mm. hand-carved wooden flute. And while it may seem like just a sweet present coming from Hagrid, uh, it actually ends up becoming very important later on in the book um, as Harry and company learn that they need to play um, the Cerberus dog Fluffy music in order to lull it to sleep. Um, Harry uses the flute mm -hmm. to play it, uh, sort of a tuneless song. Um, to coax it into a sleep. Um, the other present that he gets um, before we get to the cloak is a Weasley sweater. Yes. Which I think is very symbolically important to Harry um, because, you know, he doesn't have a family. And before this point, he never really thought of family as being that important. The Dursleys aren't important to him. He's almost happy. Well, I think he really is happy to leave them oh, behind. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't feel like he has a family of his own. And now... Mrs. Weasley is sort of symbolically welcoming him into her family, knowing that he doesn't have his own family, by giving him a Weasley sweater. And Ron even calls it that. He says, she's made you a Weasley sweater. Um, so it's sort of like she's making him one of the family, symbolically. Mm -hmm. And I think Harry sort of internalizes this, and as we're going to see later on in this chapter, starts to realize how important family actually is to him. Yeah, and I think it's really cool that J.K. Rowling, you know, makes this episode the the episode the chapter the christmas chapter where he gets this sweater and kind of becomes a part of the weasley family um i think it's interesting that she parallels that with this whole thing with the mirror said and that's not something that i had noticed before but i think that's a really good point so now let's dive a little bit deeper into the most important present that harry receives mm -hmm. the invisibility cloak so, first of all, he receives an anonymous note um, saying that the cloak belonged to his father, um, but the note's obviously not signed. Um, however, we know that Dumbledore really gave him the cloak. 
Mm-hmm. And Dumbledore actually even alludes slightly to this with his comment about not needing a cloak to become invisible. Right, when, when he meets Harry later on in the chapter, yeah. he says that. Which sort of ties into a lot of things, but that kind of alludes to it because he knows about Harry's cloak, and Harry doesn't really clock this when it's happening. Yeah, Harry doesn't really realize it, and the reader may not have picked up on it either because, you know, Dumbledore could have just noticed the cloak crumpled up on the floor or Mm -hmm. something, but it actually is connected. Dumbledore is sort of winking at the reader here and saying, like, hey, you know, I don't need a cloak. Mm -hmm. So, And something I was wondering was, you know, okay, so Dumbledore doesn't need a cloak to become invisible. What's that about? How, what kind of advanced magic... Um, I think he's just referring to disillusionment charms, which we learn about in Order of the Phoenix, and they seem to be sort of commonplace after we learn about them. Um, They make you functionally invisible. They kind of turn people into chameleons where you just sort of blend in with your background. Mm, It's not true invisibility in the Mm -hmm. same way that the cloak creates true invisibility. But as we're going to learn later on, like this cloak is unique in the sense that it does provide true invisibility where most Mm -hmm. other cloaks don't. So it's an interesting quip of his, you know, he says he doesn't need a cloak to become invisible, but if he wanted to be truly invisible, he would. Mm -hmm. Um, So a bit of a difference there. But I also think uh, it's important to note that the note that the anonymous gift giver left Harry says, use it well. What do you think Dumbledore meant when he wrote that to Harry? What was his reasoning for writing that and, and why give it to Harry at this moment in time? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, he is very young, and it especially since there are a lot of things in the castle that Dumbledore does not want students to go looking for right now, um, it seems a little bit ironic that he would give Harry this tool to use to go spy on things. But I don't know. I mean, maybe he just feels bad for Harry and wants to give him something of his father's and wants to kind of give him this tool because he doesn't have as much as the other kids in some ways yeah and it also you know it is harry's birthright so Mm -hmm. just the fact that harry deserves to inherit it maybe dumbledore feels like any time is the right time to inherit this particular gift as long as he's sort of old enough to understand what it is and what it does and what the consequences of that are and i think he is kind of at this point yeah and i mean he barely old enough he reveals that he had borrowed the cloak from james before he died later in this book yeah at the end of the book at the end of the book so Maybe he feels like, well, James would have given it to him anyway. Like you said, it's his birthright, but mm-hmm. he may feel like, well, it's he shouldn't really have it anyway, and so it should be in the family. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. What do you think he meant by use it well? I don't know. I, I wasn't sure how to answer that. Yeah. Um, See, this is what I was thinking, and I might be totally off board here, but I think he was kind of referring to the his own understanding about the Deathly Hallows is that the true master of death is the one who uses them correctly, mm-hmm. you know, who doesn't use the Elder Wand for destructive ends, um, who doesn't use the Resurrection Stone to bring back loved ones permanently, but just to see them for a few seconds, who doesn't use the cloak for, like, personal gain, but to protect. Mm-hmm. And and I think he's sort of alluding to the, the idea that, you know, as such sort of a sacred item this thing deserves to be used correctly. And even though he doesn't actually tell Harry how to use it correctly, I think he's sort of trusting Harry to figure that out for himself. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why he also may have thought it was okay to give to Harry is that although he doesn't know him well yet, he has um, obviously been observing him and hearing about him in the school, and he probably knows that he 
at least is, you know, trying to be a good kid and a good person. And he Mm -hmm. may feel like... He stands up to bullies. He protects his friends. He deserves it. And I also think it's interesting in contrast because we know that James was a bully and probably did not always use the cloak well. I mean, he... Yeah, perhaps. He he may... We don't really know exactly how he used it, but, you know, with with all the marauders and his friends, I mean, they got up to a lot of trouble and Mm -hmm. they may have not used it, I guess, as Dumbledore would have always approved of. Maybe, but I i mean, he wasn't like entirely a bad guy. I don't think we could say that he's terrible. You know? No, I'm not for trying to not put a judgment on James. But... For the best intentions, but he, I'm sure that at times he did use it to protect people. No, of course, but I'm saying that I think that part of, if we're analyzing use it well, sure. I think part of that could be saying, you know, not everyone has used it. Mm-hmm. Could be, yeah. How sure. well? Yeah, I just think maybe he's he's sort of revealing that because this cloak is so special that it needs to be. It's powerful. It needs to be, yeah, yeah. With you know, it's the Spider-Man thing. With mm-hmm. great power comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. um, and this cloak carries with it great power. So use it well. So now let's talk more specifically about the titular mirror, the mm-hmm. mirror of Erised. So the inscription on the mirror backwards and with spaces placed correctly reads <laughs> i show not your face but your heart's desire so that is the basis we learn from dumbledore of the mirror and that is what and it how shows. its magic works that's yeah. how its magic works um so we see for harry that as we touched on before family is becoming very important to harry as you said he didn't really care about it before he doesn't care about the dursleys they're his only family that he knows of um but now mrs weasley gave him the sweater kind of symbolically welcomed him in so that is paralleled with him now seeing his who he realizes are his parents in the mirror, as well as with his extended family. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does actually see his extended family. I will note that in the film, he only sees his parents, mm-hmm. and that actually makes a lot more sense um, from a continuity perspective because none of his extended family are ever brought up again. Yeah, I for- I forgot, and probably because I was thinking of the film image of that but i forgot that they were shown and he makes a lot of emphasis to seeing one of his grandfathers and it's Uh it's really um you know a big thing and then they never show up again and you would think that they would like at least in later books but um he has he he sees his parents although he has no memory of what they looked like he recognizes them based on what other people have told him so he says oh everyone said i have my mother's eyes those eyes look exactly like mine and he sees James, who looks like him but older. It really is like recognizing. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like he saw them and, and was immediately like, "Those are my parents." You can read the passage, and it's like he saw a woman with red hair, and she had bright green eyes. And then he's like, "Her eyes are just like mine." Mm-hmm. And then he's like, "Mom," mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not like a like, "Oh, that's my mom." Yeah, kind of thing. He really has never seen them before, and I think that's part of the magic of this mirror, is that it can create images out of nothing it just takes the the feelings that you have mm-hmm. the desires that are in your heart and it projects them like as a true image these this really is what his parents look like but he doesn't know that right so it doesn't come from his mind it comes from the ether of the magic of the mirror so i want to analyze harry's feelings when he sees his family for the first time because i think it's really fascinating his reaction it it is in a sense, grief, but I think also he reacts with like a love and yearning that we haven't really seen in him before. We've seen sort of a spark of like childlike wonder before 
when he learns that he's a wizard, when he learns to fly, when he sees Diagon Alley in Hogwarts for the first time. But we haven't ever seen this like really strong, like powerful love from him before. And I think it's because seeing his parents in real life sort of in the mirror is helping him to sort of put a face on these like very few early memories he has of um, his life before their loss. And he, I think he had like a really big void in his heart from from that loss, where, as we've said, he didn't ever feel like he had a family. And now he feels like he did have a family once, and it's gone. But at least now he can sort of think about them as being real people and not just ideas in his head. You know, he can think about them and conjure an image of what they looked like. And I think that's really important to his character. He's going to have this desire for the rest of the series to have a peaceful, normal life, free of tragedy, surrounded by loved ones. And that desire is going to drive a lot of his decision-making. And I think that if he weren't to have this image of his parents in his head, that drive might not be there because he might not ever think that he could have been a normal, peaceful person with a family. You know, but having the image of that, um, of him surrounded by loved ones, surrounded by his still living family. Like the image of him, I think, sticks with him so deeply. And it and it does become something that is like central to his decision making later on. Yeah, I think that's really true. And while you're talking, I was just thinking about the idea that maybe that is also part of the mirror's magic as well. Although we'll talk about the kind of negative side of the coin of going to look at your desire in the mirror. But when you said that he doesn't really have grief and he kind of just has this love and yearning, I wonder if that's also part of the experience of looking in the mirror is that you don't just see something and then have your normal reaction to it. You see it and you have the reaction that you would want to have hmm. in at the time. So kind of putting yourself almost in that moment as opposed to looking at it and making a judgment about that experience. Yeah. yeah. Again, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Yeah. So something that I thought was cool was that Ron sees just himself in the mirror, um, standing on his own with his accomplishments, the Quidditch cup, um, the house cup, he's a head boy. So he sees himself with all these kind of material things that represent his accomplishments. Um, however, he... And, and not being overshadowed by his brothers. Exactly. Like... And that's clearly the point of of his deepest desires to stand out and not be overshadowed by everyone else. But he also doesn't feel compelled to return in the same way that Harry does. And I'm wondering how he and Harry are different and also how the experiences that they're viewing are different and how that might affect them wanting to go back. I think Harry is always compelled to return because he sees in the mirror something that he could never have seen in real life. Mm -hmm. He's never seen his family. He never will again, um, except in memories or through magical means. Um, he can never experience that in real life. Ron can, although it's very unlikely, make sort of that desire a reality, even though may not be possible. I think desire can be a really powerful motivator. And for Ron, you know, he doesn't become head boy or Quidditch captain, but he does help win the House Cup on a number of occasions. He ends up joining the Quidditch team, and he's instrumental in them winning the Quidditch Cup at least once, maybe twice. He's also a prefect. He also is made prefect. So he doesn't reach all of these goals, but he comes very close. And I think the central point of this, as we've said, is he wants his own accomplishments to stand out from his brothers. 
And we know that that definitely happens. We know that he definitely does that. The Wizarding World reveres him as one of the three, the triumvirate who stopped Voldemort. So he will never be remembered as younger brother of Bill, Charlie, Fred, George, Percy. Uh, He'll always be remembered as Harry Potter's best friend, the one who helped bring about Voldemort's downfall. Yeah, and I think that that's really key, as you mentioned, that Harry is seeing something that is not possible at all. And even though Ron does achieve, the fact that he achieves these things is kind of irrelevant. It's just the idea that, yeah, I could do that no matter how unlikely. And Harry, there's no possible way. So that kind of brings us to this dangerous psychological pull that the mirror begins to have on him. Well, it's, yeah, and I think it's because Harry is so much more vulnerable to it than Ron is. I think fundamentally Ron is not vulnerable to the mirror in the sense that Harry is because Ron has such a stable life. And Harry's is so tragic and uprooted. So Harry's desires are more, not base, but they're much more fundamental. You know, Harry's desire is for family Mm -hmm. and peace and quiet and freedom from tragedy. Ron's is just, you know, some accomplishments, Mm -hmm. which there's nothing wrong with desiring that. It just shows you how different their lives have been up to that point. And because Harry's desire is so much more powerful and and it's so much like lower tier on the you know the hierarchy of needs. Um, Ron's is sort of self actualization, but Harry's is just like family. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a much baser need. So I think that's also like part of the power of the mirror is that like the more comfortable your life is, and the more sort of accessible and I don't want to say frivolous, but not as important your deepest desire is, the less power the mirror will have over you. Mm-hmm. So we've touched on this, but I was wondering about the idea that does the mirror have some curse or magical pull on it that does bring people back? But I think as we've just discussed, it really is more psychological and dependent on the desire and dependent on the person. Mm-hmm. So that symbol of the mirror really represents Harry's yearning you know, for this desire to yeah, happen, absolutely. which can quickly turn into just despair and depression at the idea that this can never be. For sure, yeah. I mean, despair and desire really are two sides of the same coin. And I think Rowling's intent with having this be sort of a central plot device uh, slash set piece in the novel is because she always includes these sort of visual metaphors in the books about sort of heady topics that are hard for children to understand. In this case, I think she's talking about how depression can so easily come about through disappointment and despair and hopelessness that if you take a desire and you remove hope from it, it becomes despairing. In Harry's case, he comes very close to that because we see him coming back day after day to the mirror to see his family. But if he had stayed, if he had dwelled on that more and more, I think you would have seen his psychological state deteriorate as he comes to the realization that this isn't real that it could never be real, that he can never be with his family. And that could very quickly turn into despair and and then uh, depression. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the other ways that people in our world um, sort of escape reality to find their own reality Mm -hmm. that they prefer to the current reality. And that's kind of what I see in this almost addiction of Harry going to the mirror of, it's very it's very much an addiction of saying i have to go there he's i could he says you know at one point i could stay here all night there's nothing stopping me very good imagery for the addiction thing is that he sort of goes off food 
Ron's mm-hmm. like, eat some bacon. What are you doing? And Harry's like, I don't care about food. Yeah. Food's not important anymore. Yeah. And it's just so kind of heart-wrenching because it is. It's his parents. It's all he'll ever really want. And yeah. it's he, it's like his whole life would have been, of course, completely different. So he yeah. is just addicted to this feeling of feeling for a moment like, I am loved. I have this family. Yeah. Psychological needs that I think actually it, it's, it could also be a commentary on addiction now that you're bringing that up. Yeah. You know, J.K. Rowling could be saying through Dumbledore, you know, it's great to be able to feel this way, but you have to recognize that this isn't real and that, you know, the quote that we have here, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. That's such a powerful quote. Yeah. And we could spend all episode unpacking that. But I think in essence, you know, the author is saying here, you can't live in a fantasy world all the time. You know, you have to live your life. You only get one. That doing drugs or living in a fantasy world elsewise, as we were just saying, escaping isn't permanent. And you're always going to have to come back to reality at some point. And when you do, you should have a full life that you can live. And that's why I think it's so nice that the parallel with the Weasley sweaters and that kind of inclusion, I think it's nice that she adds this in because it kind of keeps the hope up and it says, you know, this isn't what you originally planned or wanted for your life, but this is still, uh, you know, this is still still a kind of family, a family. Yeah. And you can, you can be happy. You can be included and it's loved. Like you can have a family. It won't be the Potters, but it'll still be your family, you know? I think that's wonderful. And it does come back again and again, Mrs. Weasley wanting him to be one of her sons and wanting him to be a part of her family. And sort of all of the Weasleys welcoming him in like that is comes up again and again. And it's just so wonderful for Harry. So now we're going to talk a little bit here about Dumbledore. So this is actually Harry and Dumbledore's first conversation um, and the reader's first real interaction with Dumbledore since chapter one. So... Dumbledore and Harry interact here in a really interesting way. Um, even though Dumbledore has just caught Harry out of bed, sneaking around in the mm-hmm. Forbidden Corridor. Um, well, not in the Forbidden Corridor, but presumably out of bounds. Right, a forbidden area. Dumbledore does not reprimand him. You know, he's the headmaster of the school. This should be a very scary situation in general. Harry doesn't Harry doesn't know him. You know, he thinks he's kind of quirky and nice, but he doesn't really know. Yeah, Harry kind of thinks of him as this like eccentric, oddball genius. And then, and then when Harry gets caught, his reaction is to kind of be like, oh no, I'm mm-hmm. screwed. The headmaster caught me, you know, like I'm totally going to get expelled. Yeah. I'm sure all those thoughts are running through his head. Yeah. But instead, uh, Dumbledore sort of treats Harry with compassion and understanding. He kind of realizes that Harry's tragic past, um, the coincidence of him having just received the invisibility cloak for Christmas, um, and obviously he was the one who gave it to him, so mm-hmm. he would know that, and what he sees in the mirror you know, this is someone who is deserving of compassion right now and not punishment. And he's like really gentle in the way that he treats Harry, even fatherly in like his advice and the way that he sort of tries to lead him to understanding through questioning and metaphor without spelling everything out for him, which is what all great teachers do. Yeah. And this closeness with Harry, this kind of treatment of him is partially just due to Dumbledore being a kind person and a good teacher. But we can also tell that they have this kind of special connection or Dumbledore is trying to form this connection Mm -hmm. um, that can kind of give us a hint or signal the reader that he has something larger at play for Harry and Harry's future 
which we will discuss in many, many chapters sure. to come, <laughs> but and the, all the pros and cons of that. And I, I just want to touch also on uh, Dumbledore's role in the book so far. So we saw Dumbledore in chapter one. He was, I don't want to say like the leader of everybody, but he definitely was a, a clearly a very important figure. We've seen um, that he is like a very lofty character in the wizarding world overall, a recipient of numerous awards, positions of authority. He's highly respected, even revered by some wizards, but he also comes off as eccentric, enigmatic. He's sort of aloof as a headmaster. You don't see him around very much, um, except at feasts and celebrations. Um, but here in this scene, we see a much more down to earth and kind, like understanding, compassionate man, rather than this sort of lofty, oddball character that we were seeing before. Um, makes him much more human. So it's also important to note here that Dumbledore is clearly giving Harry critical information on purpose about the mirror. About the mirror with potentially disastrous consequences. Although it turns out okay at the end of the books, um, it's kind of scary because he says, should Harry face the mirror again, he'll know what to do. So Harry will face the mirror again, and thanks to Dumbledore, he knows how to get past its defenses. So we'll see later that the fact that Dumbledore gave Harry this information nearly killed him and nearly led to Voldemort's rebirth. Right. So Harry Harry gets the, the Philosopher's Stone out of the mirror because he knows how it works. And then uh, he gets attacked by Quirrell slash Voldemort, who know that he has the stone now. Um, and if it hadn't been for dumb luck and Dumbledore's timely arrival, just as Harry passes out, Harry would have died. Quirrell slash Voldemort would have got the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, Voldemort would have t returned to power. And then they would have ushered in a new Dark Age. Um, yeah. Very much like what we see in Book 7. So this was clearly a huge misstep from Dumbledore, although he was obviously just trying to protect Harry in this moment. He even says that should Harry face the mirror again, he'll know what to do. So in a way, he's kind of implying that Harry will and should face the mirror again. Is he expecting Harry to go after the stone? I don't know, but I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, in combination with the idea that he gives him the invisibility cloak, which gives him this access to the castle. He sort of doesn't reprimand him really for being out of bed. I mean, it's it's He's very all, much enabling Harry's dangerous behavior, and it, it's all kind of back to Dumbledore's like I don't know if it's a fatal flaw, but just his the whole thing with his relationship with Harry, where he is using Harry as a pawn in a lot of ways. And again, we'll talk about that a lot later, but. I think this is, you know, a little bit suspicious when you think about it too much. You know, why is he giving him so much access yeah. and so much encouragement to go into these dangerous situations? Yeah, and I think from a writing perspective, clearly this scene needs to happen for Harry to get the information that he needs to uh, successfully get the stone at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. It just It's just that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense from Dumbledore's perspective. Um, right. It's it's obviously very dangerous to just sort of give away information like this, especially to someone who is so brash and courageous and is going to go charging in as the White Knight to save the day. If Dumbledore hadn't intervened at the end of the book and saved Harry, Voldemort gets the stone, Voldemort rises again, Harry dies. So it's really only Dumbledore's timely arrival that prevents disaster in that moment. And he left a lot up to chance, I have to say. Yes, the other question um, that this raises is, is the Philosopher's Stone already in the mirror, or is it hidden underneath the school, beneath the trapdoor and all those defenses? 
Yeah, and I think that we were thinking about that and kind of came to the conclusion that it's probably in the mirror and that Fluffy is kind of... Uh, like a misdirection. A misdirection or is, and or is guarding some of the other things that are being built down there to pro- eventually protect the stone. Okay. And that Dumbledore, you know, there's probably still, still some things the down there. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And Dumbledore says, I'm moving the mirror tomorrow. So it's kind of in this preparation stage. Uh, but it is probably in the mirror at this time. Yeah. Interesting. So it's basically just out in the open right now. And it's only the fact that. Like, there are all these other defenses that are very obvious. Fluffy, you know, you can't miss it. You know, it's like a huge three-headed dog. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's the thing that's guarding it. That's kind of a classic misdirection, I'd say. Yeah. That seems likely to me. And the last thing to sort of wonder about here is what do we think Dumbledore sees when he looks in the mirror? I'm assuming that he sees his sister Ariana or some other regret from his past. Yeah. So he says it sucks. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time that he lies to Harry. And Harry knows at, at the end. He says he thinks, he suspects that he's lying. He says he doesn't think so in the moment, but he probably just wasn't thinking too hard about it. And then he goes back to bed and he's laying awake, sort of thinking about everything, processing it. And he's like, oh, he probably wasn't being truthful with me. Mm-hmm. But as he says, it was a very personal question. And it was the first conversation they ever had. So, yeah, you know, maybe don't ask such personal questions, Harry. But no, I do think I do think that it's entirely likely that he saw Ariana and Aberforth and maybe his mother together and happy and, and whole and unharmed. And I think that he blames himself for everything that happened to them. And that's why, it. although they're similar in the way that what Harry sees and what Dumbledore sees are similar visually, they, but they both see their families together and, and all happy. Dumbledore's vision is very different because he feels as though he has caused this to not be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so they are very different um, in terms of the emotion attached to them, but they are also similar in the fact that not only is it both, you know, seeing complete families, we assume, but also the idea that these can never be again. You know, these yeah. are both related to deaths of family members and rupture of families and. These can both never be again. And so there are a lot of ways in which Harry and Dumbledore are similar in general and in this moment as well. And even Dumbledore, with all his wisdom and and knowing that death is a barrier that can never be crossed again, still, when he finds Marvel Ogant's ring, the Horcrux, and the Resurrection Stone inside it, believes that he can see Ariana and Kendra again and, and tries to bring them back, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But even great Dumbledore is still can still fall prey to these desires. And that shows you how powerful desires can be like that. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Mirror of Erised. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have. And stay tuned for next time when we explore Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.